Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey everybody, today's episode is brought to you by the Feminist Press, publisher of a novel called Fiebre Tropical by Juliana Delgado Lopera. It's a coming-of-age story. It's a coming-out story. It is set in immigrant Miami. NBC News calls Delgado Lopera, quote, a merciless satirist in control of a pitch-perfect voice. Fiebre Tropical, the new novel by Juliana Delgado Lopera, available right now from the Feminist Press. Hey everybody, how you doing? What's going on? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. This is the Other People Podcast. It's good to be with you. And uh, I'm very happy to have Nicolette Polek on the show today. She has a story collection out called Imaginary Museums. It's available from Soft Skull Press. And uh, she was here not too long ago. We had a conversation. I'm going to share that conversation with you in just a moment. Before I do... Uh, I do have a small announcement to make. I don't want to make a huge deal out of it or anything, but I do want to acknowledge it in case you're wondering. Uh, I quit Twitter. I finally did it. I ended uh, my relationship with Twitter after nearly a decade. Or is it more than a decade? I don't even know. But it's like about a decade of my life, when I look back on it, that I have been on Twitter. And uh, as many of you know, I've been thinking about quitting for a long time, and I finally did it. And when I did do it, I was, uh, of all places, at the gym. It was morning. I was lying on my back. I was on the floor lying on my back. <laughs> uh, this is how I start my experience at the gym. I get, I get there very early in the morning, and I find a place. I get a little mat, and I find a place, and I just kind of lie down on my back. And usually I, I close my eyes, and I'm almost like sleeping. I need a moment to like uh, adjust to the gym, but I was there, uh, you know, in the gym lying on my back. And at some point I, I pulled my phone out of my uh, pocket and I was kind of lying on my back, looking up at my phone, you know, that posture, right? How we do that. 
instead of looking up at like the sky, we look up at our phones or whatever. And I was doing that and I was looking at my phone and I think I was scrolling through Twitter and I just said, fuck it. And I deleted it. I deleted my personal account. I deleted my other people account. I'm done. And, you know, for the past few years, or at least the past couple of years, I have said that I was going to do, I was going to stay on Twitter until the end of the Trump presidency. This was like, for some reason, the timeline that I was giving myself. And I think I was uh, justifying or rationalizing staying on because uh, I felt, and I I think, you know, at least to some degree, continue to feel like the uh, information war or like the psychological experience of this presidency is unfolding primarily on Twitter. Or at least that's where like the heart of the action is. And so I was going to be there to try in my, you know, my tiny little way, uh, to be some kind of, uh, agent of resistance or something to try to thwart the chaos or the, just the, uh, relentless stupidity and, uh, menace of it all. But I just couldn't do it. You know, in the end I didn't last and uh, I'm probably, I think going to be the better for it. I also want to make a point uh, of, uh, I want to note that it wasn't just, you know, the political aspects of Twitter that made me want to quit. It's a big list of things. It's an, and it's an accumulated, uh, you know, it's an accumulation of experiences and uh, I don't know. It's just what my gut is telling me to do. I spent a decade of my life on this fucking site. I gave my brain to this app or whatever you want to call it for 10 years of my life. And, you know, I don't know what it did to me. I have some ideas, but if I'm being honest, I feel like I've been part of an unregulated experiment, you know, for the past decade of my life interacting with this. And, you know, I also need to note that I didn't have the greatest self-control around it. I was constantly checking it. I don't have that discipline for some reason. I'm an information junkie. I love the humor of Twitter. I love like making jokes. I, I, that's the part of it that I'll miss the most is the, is the funny part of it. It's not all bad, but in the end for me, the bad outweighed the good. And I recognize that there's a, you know, I got some, some emails and I heard from some people who were like, are you okay? Uh, there's something kind of, uh, suicidal about quitting social media. You're just detaching yourself from uh, a social group, even if it is a virtual social group. And I want to assure everybody that I'm okay. Um, I just don't want to be on Twitter anymore. And I expect the change to be permanent. I recognize that it's probably going to be detrimental to my, uh, I don't know what, you know, my brand. I don't even want to have a fucking brand. I wish I don't, I don't even uh, like to think of things in those terms. Maybe it's a ra- uh, like a reality that I'm just resisting. Maybe I'm exercising privilege by quitting. Uh, maybe just having the option to quit means I'm uh, spoiled rotten. I don't know. I shouldn't have to think this much about anything like Twitter. I shouldn't have to think this much about a company, which is ultimately what it is. You know, I'm tired of my brain space being occupied by these fucking people in this fucking site. So I'm done. And not only that, I'm done like giving them content, which is what we all do. We just populate their sites with content and then they monetize it and cash in on it. Fuck that. I'm done with it. 
So uh, I guess, you know, if somebody wants to run the other people uh, Twitter account, I've thought of that. Like maybe somebody should just, I should just have somebody run it. I don't know who would want to do that, but if you're out there and you're like dying to run the other people Twitter account in a semi-responsible way, I, I think I would at least entertain the notion, but I don't want to have access to it. Or I guess I would have to, you know, that's where it gets complicated. I thought about like, oh, you know, I can just find a way to like automate it and it'll just be this feed. I don't even have to touch it. I don't even want it out there. I don't, I don't even want to have the temptation to go look at it. Is that crazy? Like to me, it's all or nothing. I did this with Facebook many years ago. I just quit and I never went back and people were like, dude, you're going to be back. Uh, You know, I'm proud of the fact that I never went back. Facebook is even more, uh, more of a a plague than uh, Twitter, in my opinion. Okay, boomer. And I'm not even a boomer. I'm Gen X. That's my daughter. So uh, I'm also, (laughs) uh, I'm also not judging you. If you want to stay on Twitter, stay on Twitter. You know, I don't, to each their own. I'm not trying to like pat myself on the back here. I'm just telling you what I did and trying to explain it a little bit. It's just not for me. It's not good for me. How's that? Whatever, Boomer. So, uh, that said, you know, I'm not going anywhere in terms of, uh, the show or, you know, life in general. If you want, if you want to find me, just listen to the show. That's the other thing that sort of occurred to me. I put out a podcast once a week for a decade. By now, I would hope that most people know how to figure it out. And, uh, you know, if you like the show, tweet about it, (laughs) post it on your Facebook wall. I I don't know what, you know, I hate the idea of being trapped by these companies. Like you have to use them or else, you know, they sort of have that on you and I'm not letting them have that on me or I'm going to resist it. I think, you know, we'll see how it goes. But, uh, yeah, if you want to find me, I'll be here on the show. New episode every Wednesday. Nothing changes. And, uh, aside from that, I may start sending out an email newsletter, uh, if I can get my shit together, you know, and if the time suck of the project isn't too onerous, I'll send out just an email blast every Wednesday to, uh, remind people that there's a new episode up. I might do that. We'll see. So if you want to sign up for my email newsletter, you can do that at otherppl.com. There's a little link over in the uh, left sidebar. So Nicolette Polek is my guest today, and uh, her new story collection, Imaginary Museums, is available from Soft Skull Press. I had uh, such a nice time meeting her and talking with her. She is such a sweet person, and I think you're going to enjoy hearing from her. Uh, so let's do it. This is Nicolette Polek and her new story collection. One more time is called imaginary museums. Um, well, they came from the Slovak Republic. Um, my father, this was his second time coming to the United States. He came in the eighties for the first time. Um, he was a refugee. He was in refugee camp in Italy and then decided to come to America because one of his other brothers, he has, uh, nine siblings um, had left the country and became a computer programmer in 
uh, I think in New Jersey. So he thought that would be a good viable place for him to go. Um, Jersey. <laughs> but he came here. He got sick and then came back to Slovakia. Who got sick? My father. What did he get? Um, it's something that has to do with a muscular um, disintegration. Basically, he couldn't walk. He was supposed to die. Um, but things kind of turned around, and um, he met my mother, and then both of them moved back to the United States. I mean, back for my father, but my mother was her first time. And I think the goal was for them to go to New Jersey, maybe, to live near my uncle, but the car broke down in Cleveland as as much as I can understand, and then there's, they ended up staying there. Wow. Um, but there's already a, a pretty large Eastern European population in that area, so I think it made sense, and it probably wasn't as fantastical as I've been telling the story, but it is the compressed version. So you grew up, like, born in Tarzana, but pretty much spent your entire youth in... Willoughby, Ohio. Willoughby, Ohio. Yeah. I'm a Midwestern yeah. person. Yeah, where are you from? Uh, Wisconsin and oh. Indiana. Okay. So same neck of the woods. Yeah. Did you like it? Uh, I did. It, 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 that seems to be difficult. Huh. I did. I was an only child, so I think a lot of the world had nothing, or that the world that I was in growing up in really, in a way it had to do with Willoughby, but also had to do with like emotional stuff. But um, we, le- we lived right next to Lake Erie which was really nice. Mm. I think it's like 56 miles to Canada, and I would go there a lot. Um, I I think increasingly the thought of living somewhere near the Canadian border sounds good good to me. (laughs) (laughs) They are trying to make a ferry, or the last I knew they were trying to make a ferry um, that would go to Canada. But I don't even know what part of Canada was on the other side of Lake Erie. So were you like you you were saying earlier I think before we came on that you don't talk a ton. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like are you shy, like introverted? Oh, yeah. I, yeah, both of those things. And, and I think I before uh recently I was even more so and very anxious. And uh yeah, I spent a lot of time alone most of my life and growing up and which I think was beneficial in like what I ended up becoming. <laughs> were, were both of your parents working? And so, like, you were, like, a latchkey kid or, like, spending time alone like that? Or do you just mean you were an only child and had a lot of time on your hands? Both. My mom was a librarian, and um, my dad was a courier when I was growing up. So he would, uh, like, drop paychecks to banks and stuff, I think. And so after school, my dad would drop me off at the library, and I would basically just spend time there. My mom worked in circulation and forgot what department it is but it's like where all the books that are damaged go or like when they are coming into the library and they're cataloging she was in cataloging and then later in reference so i would be there from like i don't know 3 30 to 9 p.m <laughs> just in the library um which didn't mean that i read a lot but it did mean that i was um but you probably read more than most kids just because of proximity yeah i definitely thought that being around books was um just a given in terms of having a life. And so were both of your parents big readers? I mean, your no. mom, obviously. Well, I mean, she she was a scientist in Slovakia, and then when she came here, she got her master's in library sciences. Um, and she, I guess she was a big reader. It wasn't something that I saw them do often, um, but they had a respect for literature mm. in a way. She was more, I think... 
interested in the informational sciences aspect of it and research. Um, but now she works at American Greetings, so it's very different. What is that? Is that like greeting, greeting cards? Card company, yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. She, what, what's she doing? She's in Global Resources, I think it is. She has this office with all these attachments that go on cards, and she catalogs those. So it's just like a room with ribbons and different little dongles. Is that based in Cleveland? Yes. It is. In Brooklyn? I've always had this like thought that, like, you know, who are these people making greeting cards? And then who are these, these people who make board books for kids? Mm-hmm. And like the, the ones that like catch on. Yeah. I, I talked to uh, Adam Mans back on this show. He wrote Go the Fuck to Sleep, that kind of funny, like tongue in cheek, like children's book for adults. Okay. It sold like 3 million copies. He wrote it in like 15 minutes. Yeah. Like what that, you know? I I'm, hear that children's uh, literature is pretty lucrative. I mean, if you, sure if you can true. cut through, there's a million. I mean, a lot of people have sort of had this yeah. dream, I think, but um, it's just like, man. Like Sandra Boynton, she's just making a mint. If you're not a parent, you don't know who Sandra Boynton is, but she writes these little rhymey books with like cartoon hippopotami and, you mm-hmm. know, that kind of stuff. But um, I thought, I think she actually got her start in greeting cards, hmm. I want to say. Well, I tried to get a job there over a summer when I was back from college to write greeting cards, and I must have been really bad at it because I didn't get <laughs> it, but um, I had You're to. not cheering anyone up, Nicolette. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had to, they gave me like very different um, occasions and I had to write sentiments in like six different ways. Um, and I think maybe I was too odd about it or it maybe wasn't relatable enough, but it was an interesting assessment of having to think of like, how can I think of grief in 15 different ways through objects? Or, yeah, it's like you know, probably like a useful like literary exercise. Yeah, I think, I think so. And I think also it's something I'm interested in, too, um, like how objects hold emotion. Or It is an interesting uh, thing to write about. Like, how can I write about grief and death um, through like looking at sandals or something? Okay, do objects hold emotion? Because like, I feel like I'm a really unsentimental person. And like, it's the, it's not the object that holds the emotion. It's the object that evokes the emotion in you. Sure. Right. Yeah. There's a really good essay by Charles Baxter called on defamiliarization. He kind of talks about this or gives an example of, um, charged objects. And like, for example, like if you have an abusive uncle, um, you might not remember necessarily like him and what he's done, but you'll remember the ashtray that he would always like be stubbing his cigars in and that will be the thing that takes precedent in your memory more right um than like the actual traumatic event um so that might be something yeah i guess that would do um i guess like yeah, when i'm thinking of myself like i don't like to ha- i don't hang on to anything i think only just like my kids artwork but mm-hmm. even that i'm like you know what i do i take pictures of it Cause I'm like, at least it's on my phone. Uh, you know, I can like put it in my Dropbox and someday like look at it. But do you think you will? Though? No. Yeah. I just move on. Like mm. we're all, I'm just, we're all headed for the void. I'm like, I'm not looking back. I think that's probably good. I mean, not to be, <laughs> I'm sure my kids will listen to this one day and be like, Jesus dad. <laughs> <laughs> I think my parents are the opposite. They have every single homework assignment that I've ever done. Well, my wife keeps them. Like, we have in our laundry room, we have this like pile that's growing and I'm like, what is this? <laughs> She's like, these are all of her pictures. I'm like, okay. But like, 
can we archive this? Like, what are we doing with it? Mm-hmm. I don't get it. Um, so what about literature, uh, like the relationship between you and books and wanting to make books? Like when did that turn happen? It sounds like as a kid growing up and like going to the library to see your mom after school and kind of that being your, your after school, um, playground or whatever, mm-hmm. it wasn't really immediate. Yeah. It's something you sort of grew towards. Like, can you talk about when it started to become, um, a possibility for you in your mind or something that you thought you might want to do or when you really became a serious reader? Well, I think even then I thought I was bound to be a writer, but I thought it was kind of a deci- like a decision that was made for me. I, I think I had this like prophetic sense that I was maybe going to be a writer even then when I was in the library. I mean, I even remember there's like a basement in the library where they would have books that were damaged or that they were going to put in book sales. And I would go down there and like add to the books or take the pages out. I mean, of course this wasn't, um, like directly when I decided I would be a writer or anything, but, um, I think maybe I took it seriously after college, even though I had been writing, um, unseriously all the time before then like what like high school poetry and stuff high school poetry i had lots of plays and um novels that i wrote as a kid in elementary school and middle school um i think i was always crafting stories because i was a big liar always really Um, as a kid i mean i've kind of grown out of that thankfully or have become aware of it and like what it means when you're an adult, <laughs> that kind of personality trait. But I think I exaggerated a lot. And I think that had to do with um, just having a different family than the rest of the families in my Ohio elementary school and not knowing how to um, explain it and defaulting to these like bizarre stories of well they're from the circus that's why they sound different than their parents <laughs> that's sweet <laughs> but i think that i mean kids can really sniff out that kind of stuff and i think uh, they didn't really like it I, I remember that being like a problem um not knowing when to stop cut it out and, and my daughter's got a friend who just like tells the most fantastical stories <laughs> just full of shit you know but like i kind of love it i'm kind of like wow this kid She's just like fearless. Mm-hmm. There's a fearlessness to her um, that I admire. And I have a feeling like, you know, as she gets to adulthood, she's going to wind up being great. Um, well, it's funny that you say it's a fearlessness because I think it oftentimes comes from like a very intense, fearful place. Too. Right. Um, but Maybe that's the case. I don't know. This girl, the one that I'm thinking of is, she doesn't seem afraid of anything. She's sort of all over the place, but... Well, that's maybe a part of her, like, her, the story that she's crafting, like her little mythology of herself. Wow. Now when I look at her, I'm going to be like, she's terrified. <laughs> <laughs> Sit her down and ask her to tell you the truth. <laughs> uh, so what were you like in high school? Like, you get to adolescence and, um, like, were you a loner? Were you goth? Were you... Did uh, you have a rebellious phase? You seem like you're pretty... I don't know. You seem like you're the kind of person who kind of, like, held it together. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> I think that's where I am now. But before, uh, I ended up in an interesting high school. My parents, even though they, it was like a pretty low income 
upbringing that I had, they wanted me to have a good education, so I ended up going on scholarship to this international boarding school that was also an equestrian school um, that was nearby my house. Um, that, so everyone else was from out out of Ohio, and there were a few local people, um, and then it was me. But I was I didn't get along with many of the people there. It was a very small school. I think when I started, it was still an all girls school. The second year, it turned into co-ed, but there were f- six people in my grade. Oh Jesus! What was the name of it? Andrews. It was Andrews, and then it became Andrews Osborne Academy, and. Um, yeah, they were like the horseback riding girls and... Um, the, the two of them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then there were some girls from Korea. And then um, there was me who was um, terrified and, like, I guess more artistic than the other people. I mean, it, it, there were a lot of students who had strengths in math and science and business was their goal after high school. And so there wasn't, like, a literary magazine or... Um, a film club and I started it, which was good. But what you did start a film I club? I did. Oh. <laughs> um, How many people were in it? Actually, a surprising amount because we were required to join electives, and I think that maybe seemed like people thought we would just watch movies after school. <laughs> right, right. Um, but yeah, so in that way, it was it was good that there was one teacher I had who um, came from New York City, and we became friends or I, I viewed her as my mentor and she encouraged um, the parts of me that I felt weren't um, very um, accepted otherwise in that school environment. You mean like the artistic stuff? Yeah. Um, but otherwise I was still very anxious and I was having really like a lot of trouble sleeping. I took a lot of Ambien. Like that was kind of like my drug and do you know what you were anxious about like can you do you have you like tried to unpack it yeah i think i mean most of it was speaking and a lot of it was i think i was always afraid of saying the wrong thing in any situation but um i'm sure there are lots of things that have happened to me when i was younger that made me think that i was saying the wrong thing or like I, i you know um like the wrong word or did kids like did kids like pick up on the fact that you were um like slovakian or you know from a first generation yeah that too Mm -hmm. yeah i mean but like or was it like or was it just something broader than that i think it may have been just even like uh being around adults at some point that um had their uh, had lots of things going on in their life and had a lot of anger and that would often be directed at me and even though um, yeah I feel like I've been in situations where uh, I was being blamed for things like even though I don't know if this is kind of fake and <laughs> trying to like dance around a personal thing right? maybe but um, yeah I think speaking was just a thing and also I like I I had my parents to talk to, and that was basically it. We didn't have many like kids on the block or anything, and um, so I, I feel like I wasn't very well socialized <laughs> in a way. Um, so I was, I was really like testing out being a person with terror, um, and I think everyone 
deals with that. But then maybe I was a little bit, I don't know. Well, you know, and I, as a parent, like things get imprinted mm-hmm. on us as kids early. I've seen it with my daughter. She's nine. I'm sure I'll see it with my son. So, I mean, I'm starting to a little bit, but she's like, uh, she's terrified of like, all she ever says is like, I don't want to be or D. She's terrified mm-hmm. of barfing and dying. But C is fine. <laughs> What's that? A C is fine. Did you? Uh, you I said, said B or D. That, that stands for barfing and dying. Ah, okay, okay. Those are, yeah, no, not the letters, not the letters. She's not terrified of individual oh. letters, but she just like codes it. And like literally every day, she's just like, please tell me I won't. Promise me. And I'm, of course, the kind of parent where I'm like, I can't promise you. I can't make these kinds of like blanket promises. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And she's like, Dad, that's not helping. <laughs> like, I'm <Yeah>. sorry. <laughs> I don't want to bullshit her, you know, like be like, I can't make that promise. Cause then what if it happens? And then she's going to blame me. And it will. Yeah. She's going to get thing. barf, you know, she's going to have to, she's Maybe a kid. You have to think about a, a way to make it seem not fun, but uh, that it, it's not as heavy of a thing. Well, this morning I was like trying to uh, like assuage her concerns mm-hmm. and I was like, okay, so there's this parable. It's like a Buddhist parable, but, um, I didn't tell her that I was just like, <laughs> this guy gets shot in the leg with an arrow. And immediately she's like, uh, and I was like, but then he like freaks out about it and he's like worried about it. And he's like going, Oh my God. And he's like panicking that he got shot with an arrow. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's like shooting yourself with a second arrow. And I, was, <laughs> and I was like, do you understand? And she was like, yeah, dad. Like she just sort of like looked at me like you're nuts. So I think I fail in trying to find proper ways of connecting with children. <laughs> I think it's probably something that. Yeah, every, no one's really prepared for it in that way. Yeah, you can't hard. just be like, well, I mean, um, if you never barf, then you'll be af- like always afraid of barfing. So it's important actually that you barf because then I'll be less <laughs> fearful. And then the kid is just like, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like the thing about it is that I think before I had children, I was like, oh, I'm going to be able to talk to kids like this, and you know, like you're just, I'm going to be able to just be honest. And the thing about it is the velocity. Mm. These things happen so quickly. It's not like you have time to like prepare that cool line that you deliver with like, you know, off the cuff. Like it's like the chaos of the morning. You're like trying to get one kid diaper changed and breakfast made. And then your daughter comes in and she's like, I'm panicking. (laughs) (laughs) And in the middle of it all, you've got to like somehow deliver. And it's, you know, you you don't bat a thousand, Mm. you know? So, um, were you like, you seem like you were maybe a, a kid who was more mature than your peers because maybe you interacted with adults more than kids as a child growing up. Like, do you feel like that was the case? I don't know. It's hard to tell. I, mean, I think I felt that way at the time, but, uh, that may have been like as a result of feeling like I was, uh, like a guardedness or like a, maybe a pretension that came from a guardedness or something. I don't know how actually it, it was in a way. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes gardenness can come off like, wow, that person's got it all together. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel. Cause I feel like I'm, I need to be more guarded sometimes. Sometimes I'm like, what am I babbling about? But, um, I think when I'm around people who have like a certain like silence or quiet to them, mm-hmm. I'm always like, Ooh, interesting. Like mm-hmm. they're poised. I I think I did have a lot of experience of sitting with uncomfortable feelings, which I think does result in a kind of like calm in the storm uh, mentality, which I think is 
kind of at the root of a lot of wisdom, but I mean, it wasn't because I was a wise kid, but it was because I was like learning to have to um, hold a lot of like tumultuous stuff all the time. But like, what do you mean tumultuous stuff? Like, you mean just like the anxiety of um, speaking and... Yeah, I mean, I was also depressed. I mean, I remember being like seven and having um, like episodes of like tremendous velocity of like throwing myself on the bathroom floor in despair. <laughs> and, um, and I don't know where it came from or why, but I feel like I always had that. And it seemed separate from me. I don't know. I, I, I have for a, a lot of my youth felt like I was... Um, yeah, controlled by like some sort of darkness in in me. But is there any like is there any of that in your family line? Like, are your parents depressive? Uh, not that I can tell. They both seem pretty strong mentally. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, we all have our our thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think. Uh, I don't know. I have like a certain darkness. I think it's like a dark humoredness kind of but sometimes the humor can be missing. Do you know what I'm saying? Like sometimes that piece isn't there and then you're just like left with like the, like the grim attitude. Uh-huh. It's like attitudinal. Uh, I mean, I've never had trouble getting out of bed or anything like that. It's mm-hmm. not that kind of depression, but I can be sort of cynical, mm-hmm. you know, about the world. And, uh, I think I kind of had that when I was young, there's always some element of it. That's my memory. Like, I remember my guidance counselor telling my mom, what was it? It was like, I was trying to, I had to go take medicine. I don't know if you remember this from elementary school. Like if you had to take medicine, you had to like go to the nurse Mm -hmm. or like you had to go to the office to like get your medicine. Uh So I was on some antibiotic or something. And I was like, I was like getting up. We had like a class in the guidance counselor's room. I don't know what it was called guidance or something. (laughs) She basically like, you know, I don't know what we did. Wow. And I got up to go get my medicine because I looked at the clock. And she was like, where are you going? And I was like, I'm going to take my medicine. I just like walked out. (laughs) And she was like, so I guess I said it with like this attitude. And she called my mom was like, she's like, I'm worried about him. Like he just, but to me it was like, I don't need you to tell me I can go do this. Mm -hmm. I think I was just kind of like a ornery kid or something. Yeah. I think I read a study recently that that kind of trait is more common in male students. Than <laughs> students. Do I have male rage? Is that what you're telling me? Disagreeable quality. <laughs> um, yeah, but I guess also I was a very healthy kid. I never had to go to the nurse to take my antibiotics, but I did try to make as many excuses to go to the nurse because I love the nurse's office. That's quiet. You can lay Get down an ice in pack. a bed. Yeah. There's a bed there. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, my friend's mom was the nurse at our junior high. And she knew me, so I couldn't get away with it. Mm-hmm. Or maybe I, I, maybe I could have, but it just seemed like I didn't want to go there because I knew her. Mm-hmm. Was, Would she have told your parents? Yeah. Mm-hmm. She wasn't going to be like, hey, just lie down. She wasn't that kind of mom. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, kid, yeah. take a rest. I think she would have been like, are you really sick? You know, She's she, a professional. Yeah. <laughs> What's that all about? <sighs> um, so, okay, so you get out of this private school where there's like six people. Mm-hmm. You're probably glad to get out of there. Mm-hmm. Did you, were you, you lived at home and went, mm-hmm. you didn't live on the campus. Yeah, it was like a seven minute drive. Oh, okay. Yeah. You riding horses? No. <laughs> no? No, definitely not. Why? It's expensive. Oh, okay. I thought it was yeah. included in the curriculum or no, something. No, I mean, they had stables and 
but it was also very exclusive. I didn't have the ability to take writing lessons or anything. Okay. Um, but there was a fine arts association next door, and they had very cheap classes. So I had taken piano lessons since I was five. Um, I was like classically trained with that. And you pretty good. I ended up going to college thinking that I would be a professional, like a piano performer. Oh wow! A concert pianist, but if that didn't end up happening. <laughs> can you sing? No, I mean I can. I think not classically. Yeah, I mean, like you're not like <laughs> writing songs. Car. No. <laughs> okay. So, uh, where'd you go to college? Uh, Bennington. Oh. Vermont. It's like where you just make up your own college. Uh huh. Right. So it's great for liars. Yeah. That right. way. <laughs> I'm from the circus. I'm here to create my own curriculum. Mm-hmm. And now there's like you go from a high school where there's like six people, and like at Bennington there's like twelve. Yes. <laughs> so you're moving up in the world. It's growing. Mm-hmm. It's expanding. Yes. Um, but you must have liked it, right? That's everyone I know who goes to Bennington. They have an okay time. It was a beautiful place, um, but that's kind of where everything that maybe I was holding, like the tumultuousness, came to a head. Um, so it was also a very tragic place, in a way, for me. I, and but, I mean, it's important that I went there. I'm happy I went there. So did you, like, did you, like, what when you say came to a head? Like, you just finally, like, were like, I need to get help, or I have to reckon with this? Yeah, with mental stuff, definitely. Um, I became very depressed. Um, I think I was, like, I took a lot of amphetamines and all sorts of other things. Um, and that, of course, will, like, accentuate any, like, mental distress. Wait, what? Like if if you're taking I'm a lot kidding, of, I'm kidding. I'm <laughs> kidding. <laughs> Don't you know? Um, well, I better stop this then. <laughs> so I took a semester off at one point, um, but oh, I, so I took a yeah, so I took a semester off and finished it off. I mean, I didn't go to my own graduation. It was really kind of yeah that kind of place for me, but, um, but you graduated. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. all that matters. Yeah. Yeah. Who needs to be there? Did it. You got that piece of paper. <laughs> uh, yeah. So you didn't go to your graduation. Why? You just weren't up for it. I was a winter graduate, so I would have to have gone back to Vermont from Cleveland, um, for the official ceremony. And that was like too bleak for me to face, I think at the time. You're right. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So what did you, what was your major? What did you create for yourself? My focus. Yeah. Um, I focus on literature and piano. Um, so I did do music classes. Um, and I wrote. So if you go to, like if, if I had a piano in here, which mm-hmm. I do not, mm-hmm. you could just sit down and play a beautiful song. No, that's why I'm not a concert pianist. <laughs> You can't play at all? No. Yeah, that's that's true. I was able to fool everyone. Um, <laughs> it was actually a player piano. I was just sitting there. Yeah, I actually did uh, mechanical engineering and I created these <laughs> instruments. No, I, I the reason why I couldn't really do it is because I was so nervous at the end of it that I couldn't even perform very well. Oh. Um, I was like taking beta blockers and all sorts of things so I could even do my final thesis concert but beta blockers work uh it was the one time it did <laughs> yeah i have a friend who used to take beta blockers like to like do almost anything social 
I was always fascinated. Like, what does that even mean? What, what's, what's a beta and how is it being blocked? I think it just makes it so your heart doesn't accelerate. It's oh. just at a constant rhythm. Interesting. So the adrenaline doesn't have any um, effect on you. Um, yeah, but my hands would shake and I wouldn't be able to perform. I think even younger, I was talking about this recently, but um, I, like piano was a really serious thing growing up. It was something that my parents really wanted me to lean in on. And I think it was, there was a lot of stress on it. I'm sure like other people have experienced with sports or like dance moms or something. And your parents were pushing you. Yeah. They, they, they wanted me to practice and take it seriously. And also they would have friends over like my dad would have like his Eastern European friend come over and he would want me to play for them right. <laughs> on command. And, um, that was terrifying. I bet. Mm. Were you able to do it? Um, in a way, but I was really resentful, and I think that got to me, unfortunately. But I would like to go back to it. I bet. I mean, yeah. like that's the thing. Like, you got to like find the joy in it, mm. like disconnect it from all that other stuff, because it's such a lovely thing to be able to do to play an instrument. And I love it so much. Yeah. Yeah. And I it, would give anything, <laughs> like that, and being able to speak uh, a second language fluently. Mm-hmm. Those are the two big regrets I have. I guess I could do something about it. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to do either of those things if you don't have an end goal in mind. It's hard to just pick up a language and like really get it unless you're like planning to go to that country and living there for a little while. It, yeah. it just peters out, but I don't know. Um, yeah, you have to kind of create a circumstance that requires you to learn these skills, and that will help, I feel you, like. Do you speak Slovakian? Um, kind of. <laughs> My parents would speak Slovakian, and I would speak English back to them. Uh-huh. They, um, they learned English kind of at the same time that I did Okay. growing up. But I understand them 100%. If I go back, I can um, kind of butcher my way into speaking with people. But, um, yeah. Something I'm fascinated with when it comes to language barriers, when you're traveling abroad, or if you're just with somebody who doesn't speak your language and vice versa, is how, how, much, how much more unknowable you become. Mm. Like we can never really know one another, right? Even my wife and I, I'm like, who are you? You know, like you can't know another person with like true, like three dimensionality or whatever. Mm -hmm. But like you go somewhere and if you know like enough of the language to at least be able to get by, you're still like, I feel two dimensional. I feel flat. Mm -hmm. It flattens you out. You can just be like, I'm hungry. (laughs) That was good. Thank you. <laughs> you know? I'm just like so frustrated because you can't express any nuance or like, you know, Yeah. Uh, bug, it bugs it me. It's frustrating. And it was frustrating. I mean, it is frustrating whenever I go home um, in a way because I can understand 100% what everyone is saying. And I mean, in a way, it's good because I, I've learned to be observant and listen. Um, but yeah, I, c- I can only really respond in these like blunt um, but at least you know what everybody's saying. Cards. I know, but I can't engage with it. But do people sometimes talk shit in front of you and you're no, like, no, absolutely not. They oh, they do don't never, <laughs> but it might be like, a ni- I'm just, what I'm saying is like, it's kind of nice. Like they don't necessarily, like, if you're only able to talk in these like fragments, mm-hmm. they might think, well, she doesn't know what we're saying so we can speak freely in, in her presence, but you actually know everything that they're saying. Yeah. I haven't learned anything about myself through that way or like anything that I wasn't supposed to know, even though that would have been good. Um, 
But yeah, I did find out that I was speaking in the diminutive a lot. Um, like the Slovak that I do know was a child version of it. So there would be like, um, let's see, like a yabolko would be apple, yabolchko is like a little apple, like a kid would say little apple. Oh, so you were saying So I was that. saying like, where's my, I'm going to put on my little shoes and my little coat. <laughs> and so that was... Because um, it's all a holdover from your childhood. Yeah. That's kind of adorable. <laughs> Everyone's like, oh. I know, that's that's that was something <laughs> to be treated that way. Or like perhaps to have people suddenly be like awing and blushing but as somebody, I was speaking. But, but somebody told you. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So, okay. So we're, we're leaving Bennington. Mm-hmm. We're depressed. <laughs> uh, but we, we are graduated. Mm-hmm. Uh, literature and piano. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then what? It sounds like you've traveled abroad. So you've been back to Eastern Europe? Yeah, not then. I went to grad school kind oh, you, of right after. Where'd you go? Uh, University of Maryland in College Park. How was that? It was good. It was the three-year program. Like a lot of kids, a lot of people in your class now. Yeah, four people in my, or six people in my cohort. Oh, really? Yeah. I guess graduate school programs are small. Yeah. You never went to school with more than four or five people I in your know. life. <laughs> um, but uh, it was good. I learned to teach, was which was incredibly important. It was also kind of, in a way, I kind of squandered my education in college because I wasn't able to to speak in front of other people and in classes and with with such a small class size the importance is to learn how to discuss with others and I was never really able to engage because I was so terrified and when I got to grad school I, something happened and I was able to so I, I was able to speak in classes I learned to teach so I had to do a lot of speaking in front of people um, it made it gave you practice. Yeah, and I also like, engaged with literature in a, in um, in a in a community, in a, which is something that I never was able to do. So wait, when you were like at Bennington, or you're in high school, you're in class, you're not saying anything. I'm not saying anything at all. Wanting to, and kind of just sweating, <laughs> um, and sometimes even like writing out the exact sentence that I will say on a piece of paper. And then someone, of course, will be more confident or like say something will be too long and then the subject will pass. And then I'll just sit there for the rest of the class yeah, um, beating myself up. It was like, I don't know. Two of my closest friends growing up, uh, both terrified of public speaking, mm-hmm. like terrified yeah. to the point where like at one of their weddings, we were giving like we we're drunk. We we're like giving speeches. We we're in Mexico. <laughs> My buddy who's terrified of public speaking, we were like kind of razzing him. We'd all had like a few margaritas or whatever. And oh, I was no. like, we're like, you're next, man. You're going to get, he like ran out of the restaurant. Good for him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, yeah. friends like to mess with each other, but like he just doesn't. And he had trouble getting through school for that reason. Cause mm-hmm. he like, anytime there was a speech, he would just be like, I can't do it. Yeah. It's a freak, you know, and it's the most common, I think it's the most common uh, phobia is fear of public speaking. That makes sense. A lot of people have it. And there's also social anxiety. I mean, like, I think now I can have a comfortable conversation with four people. I've graduated to four people because uh, at that point, like, breaks off into pairs of two, and that's back to just one other person. (laughs) Um, But I'm still working to move up. But it's weird. I mean, it's also why I wrote, and why I wrote this book of stories is because I had such comfort 
complex feelings about communicating um, that manifested in like incredibly absurd ways. Um, and so, which makes it so weird that now I have to do this thing where I go around the country communicating know, about I feel, it. I feel terrible that you're, that I had, you know, that I invited you over here. I hope oh, you're, God, this is I'm okay. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is good. I, uh, I hope I don't seem like a monster for making my friend give a wedding speech. I promise it was in good humor, but I guess looking back on it, we should have gone easier on him. I no, like- I think it's important for people to have to, um, get over those things. Too. Well, and I'll tell you too, he waited tables forever and ever. And, uh, he could do that. Like I think in controlled environments, like the reason I'm drawing a line here is because I think like teaching as mm-hmm. like a practice, like a frame yeah. gives you a controlled environment in which to stand up in front of people and speak where you know what you're going to say. You're in charge of the agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can kind of find a comfort zone in these structured environments that might give you like a bit more comfort with it or confidence with it. Mm-hmm. Is that what teaching did? Yes. So you got up there, you had your lecture notes and you were able to do it. Mm-hmm. Like, but let's say like day one, mm-hmm. the first time you did it, mm-hmm. <laughs> what was that like? Well, leading up to that point, I didn't think it would be possible. And I like, spent that summer I think just like crying <laughs> but I started doing acupuncture and that helped a lot with um, anxiety stuff because at that point when I started going to grad school I wasn't taking anything anymore and I kind of um, yeah but that helped and then I also I had found my faith at that point and that was giving me a structure and like an ability to um, deal with anxiety in a different way than I ever had in my life. What's your faith? Um, I'm a Christian. Okay. Yeah. So what happened? Like, what, like, when did you, how did you find it? It was between undergrad and grad school. It was that like one semester in <laughs> between the two. I mean, I grew up around, um, Christianity or my parents were Catholic, I guess. Um, and then at one point my mom became a Protestant, but, um, it was a very different experience growing up because, Um, they came from a country, like a socialist country, where um, they couldn't really practice their faith. So when um, they came to America, there was a lot of, I mean, the fact that there was a religious freedom was um, amazing, and I didn't really feel that way. (laughs) What do you mean? You you weren't into the religion as a kid? Yeah, and I didn't feel like it was such a gift, I think, as they did, maybe, at least my mother... Um, so I really consciously rebelled against it for most of my life. And I think that's also uh, instrumental to how I made such a big mess in a lot of ways. But, um, yeah, I think it, wait, wait, I want to stop you there. Mm-hmm. Cause I rebelled against it too. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes I'm like, I think I've made a mess of my life. I think we all have that feeling. Yeah. Is it because I didn't uh, follow Jesus? <laughs> what did I do wrong? Like that's your punishment. Yeah, he's, he's no. just whooping me. I think, I mean, I feel, I do think there's like a natural way we're designed and the f- further we are from God, like the more chaos there is and the closer we are to God, there is more order. How do you conceive of God? Um, like in a very Judeo-Christian way. Is it like a he in the sky? Well, I don't think... He, I, I like um, the phrase, he's like the unmovable mover. Um, in a way, it's kind of like more of a mass. I mean, I do view it in like the Trinity, of course, too. But um, 
No, I don't think of him as a man or like a big sunshine. <laughs> the over, my, as my friend Milo Martin would say, the overhead projector. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I like, you know, I go round and round. Um, I just call it God is everything. Mm-hmm. I think this is everything, whatever that, whatever this is. Yeah. It's just, but it's like become such a loaded word that I feel like a lot of times it's unhelpful. God? Yeah. Yeah. Every, everybody's got so much uh, invested in it emotionally. Mm-hmm. That, um, and there's a lot of, I mean, you live in LA too, but there's a lot of like this new spirituality that's everywhere. California voodoo. Uh-huh. Come on. But it's everywhere too. And especially with younger generations, I feel that, um, spirituality can be anything and God could be a reflection of yourself. And I think that seems really scary to me <laughs> in a way, or it doesn't seem sustainable really, um, so okay so take me inside like the the actual process of coming to this like in between undergrad and graduate school was it an event or was it just like i'm feeling shitty i'm gonna go to church like i'm i'm at my wits end Uh let me me give this a shot and it felt good like my testimony i don't know yeah (laughs) i'm just curious about what happened this this sort of stuff is interesting because i feel like it's so elemental Mm-hmm. You know, it's at the core of who a person is. Um, yeah. And of course, it's going to filter into the work that you do creatively. Yes, it did. Um, well, I think going back to like the mess that I made in, in college, it did kind of reach a bottom. And when I graduated, something about also like anxiety, I feel like that was happening with my identity is that I didn't quite, well, I didn't know how to communicate with people very well. But also the way I would communicate would be dictated by um, like conforming to whoever I was speaking to or whatever environment. So I didn't really have a self in a way. I feel like I was always trying to like um, accommodate to whatever social situation. And over time, I like drained myself of who I was in a way because, um, yeah, I was, I was putting on all these false selves in a way. But... Um, I think a lot of those false selves became exposed in in kind of this like um, explosive way at the end of college. That explosive. I'm not, yeah, like I'm not going to get into it, but like oh, I had, okay. <laughs> like I had um, like a, I, I treated people really poorly in a way, and I treated myself very poorly, and it became um, it came to light in a way, and so um, I moved back to Ohio, and I felt awful. I didn't have there was I was felt I, I had a lot of shame and a lot of guilt of course and I kind of thought my, that my options were that I have to come to terms with these are parts of my personality and I just have to learn to live with it and carry this burden or there was this other possibility that kind of came into my life which was when I started going to church with my mom when I was home again that it just um, like that I could give it to Jesus in a way. That's kind of what Jesus's life was, that he died in that way. Um, but it was, it was like a very sudden realization and like everything kind of fell away. Um, like my shame and my worry in a way that like, it became clear that to carry all this stuff isn't because another part of it is that I so badly wanted to be a good person. I wanted to help people and I um, wanted to have a life that 
was making people's lives better. And I, my like flesh is so noisy and my life is so like, I'm such a mess that I couldn't see a way that that could be possible. Um, and I think just in that time in my life that Christianity suddenly was this thing that um, made it clear that there is like a God that I could give this stuff to you. Okay. And I hear you. I'm with you. Mm-hmm. But like, what do you mean? Give it to Jesus. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know this is, I think just like, I mean, this is kind of where like the, um, the leap of faith is or whatever. Yeah. Um, a lot of it had to do with like prayer and kind of being open I, I like started to pray towards a god or like towards jesus being like i'm not sure what i'm doing but i want to see what this is and um i felt it and yeah it's a life changer yeah it's a life changer and i was able to um in like in giving all this mess to god i was able to focus on things around me it's like a kind of self-forgetfulness in a way um but yeah it was i mean obviously it's not like suddenly my life was better (laughs) i mean i still had these bad patterns in my life but i was able to see it um a little bit more and i i I was able to not feel afraid of it or like in control I, I, i wasn't controlled by like these things that i think i felt controlled like before with lying or with you know do you forgive yourself yes yeah yeah definitely see i wonder if i've forgiven myself i think i still beat myself up for i have like all this like what was i was reading this great essay by uh what is it peter sheldahl i'm gonna mess up his name he's a new yorker like art critic writer Mm. he's got lung cancer he basically wrote his last essay or one of his last essays Mm. and he's like looking back on his life with like this really incredible candor Mm-hmm. I love this essay. It's what is one, it called? I don't know the name of it. Okay. Something. The Art of Dying. Mm. <laughs> it's a cheery title. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but uh, he looks back on his life and he's like, I still have all this thudding guilt. I think he said he called it thudding guilt, which like resonated with me. I do go back and like replay those stupid mistakes from, I mean, it can be the most It'd be something stupid I did in junior high and mm-hmm. I'll still be like sh- ashamed of it. Yeah. What do I got to do? Give it to Christ. <laughs> Here you go, Jesus. Take this. Yeah. I mean, also like a lot of it since I, I've had like, it didn't intellectually make sense and it still doesn't. And a lot of it, I mean, of course, faith requires um, like an abandonment at the beginning. Um, and then it kind of makes sense over time. But I mean, I wait, did a wait, lot wait, wait. what do you mean? Like an abandonment? Um, like you can't get, have a perfect argument, um, or you can't expect a perfect argument and then put your faith in it. And that way it's like, you have to put the faith first and then things kind of make sense. Um, and that's scary in a way. Um, I, I was reading a lot at that time too. I was reading mere Christianity by CS Lewis, which is like a phenomenal book. And I even at that point didn't know that C.S. Lewis was a theologian. Um, But he writes very well, and he was an atheist, and he um, had this, like, very sudden conversion into Christianity when he was in, I don't know, Cambridge or Oxford or wherever he was. Um, 
and writes about it very well in this book, which is a series of radio essays, um, radio lectures about aspects of Christianity that he aired um, after World War II when the country was losing faith in everything and the future. And um, so I was reading those and they're really beautiful. I was reading like Spurgeon and A.W. Tozer who were, I don't know, I mean like, yeah. So I was finding a lot of answers also in that way too because I think I had all these big questions and I never really made any effort to take it seriously to find an answer. I would just kind of give up that it is this um, big unknown and have that be my doctrine. <laughs> yeah. I but. mean, when the shit hits the fan, I don't know. It doesn't leave you with much. I, I don't... I was raised Catholic and it never took for me, um, but it like, took for everybody in my family. Like, mm -hmm. extended family too. Like, I have... Like, some of my aunts were nuns. I have an uncle who's me a too. priest. Yeah. Like, so, like, I'm of that like lineage genetically, mm -hmm. but I'm the oddball. I was just like, I don't understand. Like I couldn't access it. And so I've sort of become like, I always, I jokingly say Buddhist, um, like Buddhism makes sense to me in a way that Catholicism never did. I think we all have to find our thing. Yeah. Like where we can make sense of the world. I guess some people it's atheism, but atheism always mm -hmm. strikes me as like a really fervent religious belief. Like it's, it's, it's like the, it's, it's two sides of the same coin. I like a little bit more of like a agnostic, but yet having like a framework for dealing with suffering. Mm -hmm. To me, even atheism seems like it requires the most amount of faith, like, it, it, which is, I don't know. I, I've never actually spoken to um, a very fervent atheist. I've only met people who um, haven't thought too much about it and have defaulted to atheism, but yeah. Um, yeah, the thing about, I think, Christianity that I liked the most was from, like, other religions, you have to work your way to a god um, through works and other things. And um, there's a god that is at the top of a ladder waiting for you. <laughs> and with Christianity, it's like wherever you're at, like, Jesus comes down or God comes down and meets you where you are, which I feel like doesn't really happen in a lot of religions. Um so it sounds like you have like such a gentle, nice experience of it. For me, it was like, <laughs> God is watching you. If you have sex before you're married, you're going to burn in hell. Like, that's what I remember from my youth. Yeah. And I was just like, whoa, like this is heavy. It's a lot yeah. to tell a kid. It is. Um, and I was, and I also don't buy that. Like, you know, I also had that experience growing up too. Did but you? also I feel like I maybe made up a lot of that too, in a way, like I would hear something like that. And then just ultimately at the end of every fear would be like, I don't want to go to hell. Yeah. Um, so like doesn't sound, it doesn't sound appealing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a lot more nuanced, I think, than that is what I found. But yeah, it has gone into my writing in strange ways. Do you? Okay. So um, did you have a good teacher? It sounds like you must have had, I think anytime anybody, uh, it would, I would imagine anytime anybody has a positive experience with a faith tradition, they have somebody who's able to translate it for them. So maybe it was just C.S. Lewis and these other authors that you were reading that were able to frame it and contextualize it for you in a way that made deep sense. Or was there somebody at this church that you were going to mm. who was speaking to you who you're like, I can trust this person and there's wisdom in what they're saying. 
Yeah, I think maybe my mother was、um, pretty generous in the way that she shared her faith once I came to it. And then when I moved to DC, I kind of like I was living in this group house in Tacoma Park,、um, like this co-op-y thing, and I ran into one of the housemates like the first few weeks, and she ended up. Being like a person in charge of small groups at a local church, like a progressive non-denominational Christian church that was focused in like social justice, and she brought me into it. And like,、um, I was able to find a lot of young people there who had similar experiences.、Um, Did you have any mystical experiences?、Uh, I well, I mean, if I did, I don't think it's something that I could even. Begin to explain, <laughs> but like but, no, like white light or like visited by angels or no, no, I haven't had any visitations、okay. before.、Right. I mean,、yeah. you know, but you had power. You had some kind of powerful, like、yeah. heart level experience where you're like, okay, this is what I got to do. Yes, yeah, for like weeks, months. Meaning you were like elated or like floating a little bit. Yeah. Really? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. You, but then you came out of it. Well, I mean, <laughs> now you're like back、I、on still, the ground. I, it is like something. I mean, it's not. I still have suffered since then, or something. But it is amazing. It's like this amazing. There was this one analogy that I used recently.、Um, recently, I was staying upstate、um, as like a residency to fin- like start working on my second book that I'm working on, and、um, someone had told me that a particular contemporary artist had a The exact facsimile of Snow White's cottage, made behind a house somewhere nearby where I was staying. Where were you?、Um, in Old Chatham. Where was in New York? Yeah.、Oh. And、um, the only difference between like this facsimile and the actual Snow White's cottage was that the inside was filled with VHS tapes, and this artist would spend ten, ten days of the year just watching them. Then just leave the the Snow White's cottage. So in the morning when I would go and well, what was on the VHS tapes? I don't know. <laughs> It's like old movies. I guess so. <laughs> Caddyshack. <laughs> It was this like really beautiful like thing, <laughs> and I would go on like my morning walks before I would write and、um, kind of be charged with this expectation: like, is the Snow White's cottage behind this house or this house? And the world kind of came alive. In a way of the possibility of this cottage anywhere nearby, even though I can't see it, and、um, it kind of felt like that, like the latedness. Except instead of Snow White's cottage, it's like the most wonderful thing in the world. <laughs> it's、yeah. God, you know.、Um, well, but I can imagine after a childhood spent where you're battling with depression and anxiety and a sense of dislocation, or like just not being completely sure-footed in the place that you were,、mm-hmm. right? Am、yeah. I mischaracterizing? And, no, right, right. Like, and to have all that, and then to have this like language,、um, not barrier, but like, like, like not feeling at liberty to speak, having fear of speaking, and like you said, saying the wrong thing,、mm-hmm. uh, and suffering with all that quietly, despite having so many feelings and so many things to say,、mm-hmm. that to finally find something that offered like real. A real sense of possibility and relief must have been just incredibly liberating. Yes. Good for you. 
Thanks. You know? Well, yeah. <laughs> like, I'm glad you found it. I know. I, 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 there's the part of me that wants like everyone to find it, but that's like a bad type of thing. Like. Yeah, no, I'm the same way. Like sometimes I'll be like meditating and I'll be like, Oh God, like, thank God, you know, thank God I'm not as crazy as I was like 20 minutes ago. Mm-hmm. And like, I, you know, my, my sister, um, I got her like TM lessons or whatever, just cause I felt like you'd have a teacher. I don't do TM, but I thought she might want to do it. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards I was like, it's not for everybody. You can't proselytize. Yeah. People got to find their own thing. And for yes. some people, nothing is good. They don't need shit. They're mm-hmm. fine to just be like, I don't know. And they just march on their way to their, their, uh, end. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. But it's, but it's real. It's not like they're phony, you know, like they just yeah. don't need anything. I accept, uh, I think personally, like there's a wide range of possibilities. It's not one size fits all. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of paths to the mountaintop. Yeah. You know? Um, so this also makes your book and your writing make sense. Um, and it makes it kind of touching to me, you know, that you would find, uh, in literature and in your, uh, stories, a way to express all of these things. Um, with, you know, elements of like magic and surrealism. And I mean, Mm. you could probably characterize it better than I could, but you know, you're working in, um, very compressed form. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'd love to hear you talk about that. It's interesting that somebody who's shy and who hasn't done, you know, as maybe as much talking in their life as someone like me, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, would be interested in brevity and like, you know, finding, um, I guess what, maximal emotion and maximal impact in, you know, few words. So you talk a little bit about, you know, how you came to write in this mode and how your book came together. Yeah. Well, on, on that note of compression, I mean, it's exactly right. The brevity, um, being almost like an empowerment of, uh, like not being able to say much, but the, like the amount that I can say, um, give it as much weight as possible. And I think it comes from like not feeling like I have a space to say much and um, the fear of not wanting to say too much and be misunderstood or um, have it be taken out of context or, you know. Um, so a lot of those stories were longer and over time I made smaller and smaller kind of in like a, not like a self-flagellation way, but just like wanting to cut it all out and make it, um, reduce it to its essence in a way. But, um, I have the same kind of impulse. I don't want to waste anybody's time. Yeah. That's how I feel. I'm just like, Oh, you know, imagining somebody actually reading it. I'm like, you know, just make sure that like you're quick about it and you want it to be a nice, like artistic aesthetic experience, but I just don't want to ramble at people. Mm-hmm. So I, I did feel that way in terms of like the magical elements. It's, I mean, I do have a lot of respect for like surrealist traditions and magical realism in literature. I, I don't know if that's something I was thinking about at all when I was writing. And as far as I can understand, there's surrealism, which is like a, you know, it's a bizarre world and there's ordinary familiar objects placed in that bizarre world that are maybe like logically placed together. And then there's magical realism where it's a normal world and there's one absurd thing that's brought in to illuminate like the deficiencies of our world. Like, so if you 
had a normal life except you had one foot that was like a loaf of bread or something that would be magical realism and right. <laughs> I don't know you could find, find a, something out about like how people a terrifying interact story with you. about carbs just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and both of those things to me um both relate to like the proximity of two worlds and like the fear of being too close of this other world um which that i am interested in my work but i i don't think i ever i don't think any of those stories are surreal necessarily um maybe there's like an absurd character trait that might illuminate something around them but aside from i think one story that has a, a dragon i know um, there's also like the the story about the girl with the the rope mm-hmm. barrier um i don't know they're just the absurd elements um yeah things that you wouldn't probably see in your day to day. Um, you're bending things a bit. Mm-hmm. And when you sat down to write these, can you talk about like the composition of the stories? And when you started to feel like you were going to have a collection, like, are you writing them in one shot? Are, like, are you starting with an image? Cause the stories also, um, they, they run the gamut. It's, you know, they, there's, it's a, it's a diverse collection. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you just talk about how you do your work? Mm-hmm. I I guess I wrote this book twice. It took about five years altogether, but the first time I wrote it was in undergrad, and I um, wanted to write a book about willfulness and people like trying to escape their psychology, which was like just where I was at then. And um, I think I was being really didactic, and the stories were longer, and I was imposing a shape over it, and it just didn't work. And so I abandoned that and was a lot freer afterwards, able to write these smaller stories. And then over time, like um, I was able to see patterns, and it became a collection. But a lot of them come from images um, and observations, and either like um, amping up like an accelerative like narrative with it, like what if someone had a rope barrier and like take it all the way to the extreme or um I'm trying to think yeah i mean like images were a big part of how i constructed these stories there's one so you just start with it like you'll sit there and they'll say you'll imagine a woman with a rope barrier around herself yeah or like with owls fall in nature that was a story where um i took two images that I had in my notebook and I connected them in some way. Um, not all of them were so neat, but um, I mean, a lot of them were actual miscommunications that I've had. Like the title story, Imaginary Museums, was, uh, came from an experience of being told that there was an air conditioning and refrigeration museum that existed in New York and that it would really help me and my work if I went and saw it and then finding that it didn't exist. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then also Winners was also like a similarly autobiographical story in that I started grad school and I like completely misheard all the PhD students who took us out for drinks, calling us repound a woman, me like completely being down on my like <laughs> everything that I knew um, at that time. Um, Wait, they called you what? Uh, they had referred to Ezra Pound as a woman. Oh, oh, oh. Or I thought they did, and so I, I was um, suddenly I went through a crisis, like this internal <laughs> crisis of 
um, like they must know better than I do since they're PhD students. And then kind of like the posturing that all the other students who heard that also took, like continuing this misunderstanding. And so, I mean, a lot of them were, yeah. And so how long did you say it took you five years? Yeah. Some of the stories I, um, I do a lot of putting the stories away. So I'll like write a story and then return back to it in a year and then see it as though I'm seeing it for the first time again and be able to edit it pretty clearly from then. So some of them I edited for five years. Um, some were 10 pages and ended up being two. I think the shortest one, Squinter's Watch, took an afternoon and I didn't edit it after that. Hmm. But That's always nice, right? Yeah. When they just shoot right out, mm -hmm. perfectly formed. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then what about like, uh, publishing, like, did you do any publishing of these stories in like online journals or print journals mm -hmm. and, and small ones? Yeah. I, I like, I published some of them in New York Tyrant and like Moo House and, um, Hobart, those kinds of things. The fact that it's a book feels like such an accident because I had, um, tweeted, um, at one point like a year and a half ago. Um, I was just interested and thought it'd be funny <laughs> to to be asking if there was a publisher that would be interested in publishing a collection of short stories in an enormous volume with huge margins with very small text in the center so people had to use a magnifying glass to read the stories. And um, Chelsea Hudson, someone who I had met when I was an undergraduate fellow at the MFA program at well, She's Bennington. a buddy of mine. Yeah. She's um, been on the show twice. Yeah, she she contacted me and like recommended I send it to soft school and huh. it worked out. <laughs> Look at you. That's awesome. Yeah. But it didn't turn out into a big volume with it. Margins. <laughs> but it, I'm like, it seems like such a blessing. That's it's awesome. A, I love hearing stories like that. Yeah. Like serendipity and people reaching out to help other people. Yeah. We need more of that. Working out. Things working out. Yeah. That's like, you know, it's not enough of that. It seems sometimes. So, what about like ritual? Like, and this was written, I guess you said you wrote it when you were at Bennington and then you refined it when you were at your MFA program at Maryland. Some of them, I think like five stories are from that time. The rest of them were new and that I had started and finished in grad school. Okay. And were you like an, are you like an everyday person? You sit down to write every day? No. Um, I have spurts and then, um, yeah, I'll go through like weeks of writing intensely and then maybe months of not being able to write at all or do anything at all <laughs> kind of um and then going back and having um going back to writing because i feel like i would be depressed because i wasn't writing and then that would catapult me back into this intensive state and then it would continue on but well and i think too it's like you know there's so much emphasis on productivity and there's like this internal pressure, I guess, like I got to, got to keep going, got to publish, got to do stuff, got to achieve. And yeah. sometimes it's why? just, why, mm. what's the point? It'll happen eventually, I think, but no, I think people want to feel justified and like, that makes sense. I mean, you got to, everyone's got to eat, you know, you got to do stuff, but, um, yeah, I think I, it like we can be, I guess at the point I'm making is it like, it's not absurd to think that like if you work intensely for six months and you crank out a bunch of work, 
or you publish a book or something that you might need a few months to like unwind or, you know, regenerate yourself. Yeah. I think it's important to be able to, uh, not feel, um, or feel comfortable in, in those states too, because I think it's the worst if, um, you're being hard on yourself. Um, like there's that great thing that Keats talks about the negative capability of the more you're orienting yourself to making like true art, the more, um, you are in uncertainty. And, um, that's kind of the trade off and being able to be comfortable with that uncertainty is very key. Um, and not like constantly trying to catapult yourself out of it and make yourself be busy or like have answers because that won't really let you like flourish. I like uncertainty. I was actually going to say, when we were talking about religion earlier, I had R.O. Kwan on the, on the show Mm -hmm. and, uh, she was Christian, but is now atheist. Mm. So she had like this very intense, like she was in like the church choir or something, you know, one of these like, but then we were talking about, uh, we were talking about, I guess she's not atheist because that, that would mean that she's super certain. I'd have to, you know, listen to our conversation again, but I do remember her like sort of pushing back against something I was saying at one point, And it made sense to me where she's like, I'm just on the side of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the humility in that. Yes. Like not knowing and, and not just in a religious context, but like art life. Like whenever I feel myself feeling too certain, and sometimes it'll come out of my mouth, you know, I'm, I always regret it later because yeah. I don't feel like it's true or I feel like it's some sort of like emotional reflex or I don't know. I'm never satisfied with it. I mm-hmm. wish that I would have found a way to be more nuanced. Yeah. And that also, I think in terms of speaking in that way, cause I think about that a lot, like wanting to say things that are true, um, just even like requires being silent sometimes and like letting it sort itself out. Yeah, it's hard. Like specificity and truth, like trying to get something out in a manner that like I, the, the Peter Sheldahl or, you know, I feel bad that I don't know how to pronounce the name, but that essay I was telling you about the Art of dying, it, yeah, the art of dying. It just like, maybe it was just the mood that I was in or whatever it was. But like, man, I was just like, it was like breathtaking. Cause I was like, this guy's telling the truth. <laughs> like it was unadorned, you know, it was just like, holy shit. I don't see this very often. And like, maybe like one would hope that like, it's not like a death sentence that, uh, one needs in order to get to that space. Mm-hmm. But it just felt like a laying down of all defenses or something. Mm-hmm. And, but not in a melodramatic way at all. Like it, it's like grace. Yeah. 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 How do I get to that? I don't have, well, you said even earlier that there's not one way up the mountain. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I guess you do have to be comfortable with not knowing though. Yeah. For I now. mean, it would be nice to, it would be nice to be able to, I think maybe the great writers and the great artists are able to get into some similar kind of space consistently. And that's what distinguishes them and their work and why it's why it resonates deeply. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's like a forgetting of self almost, or a forgetting of like that self-conscious, like s- internal critic. Like what, like, that's what hard. is it? <laughs> like, what is it that happened that happens to people when they're, when they're there, like, how do they get there? And like, what is the internal, like dynamic, um, like, that's what I want to know. I think it has 
a lot to do with fear still. Yeah. <laughs> Relinquish, just dropping fear. Yeah, which is terrible. I mean, like, it's a, it's hard to do, but I feel like at the root of every single um, anxiety is like a fear and a, like a threat to one's identity or like not wanting, you know. Um, and that then like requires you to refocus like where you do put your value in, in your identity. Like, is it in like your, like how people see you or if it's in your career, like any of these things when jeopardized then will be... Um, cause of a breakdown so i think like for me it was helpful um when my identity was in god because um i don't know then i wasn't um putting my identity in like how i appear or like um, myself as a woman or myself as like someone who came from a lower class or like it those things didn't define me anymore and those things weren't um really um at stake in conversations anymore. Yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does but, make sense. It does make sense. You're like but, connected to your like higher self or higher power. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I've loved talking with you. Yeah. I hope it was okay. Yeah, I think so. I hope it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're great. I just like, you know, I, I think, uh, I don't know, like when I have people over who are like uh, shy or don't love to sit here and talk about themselves. I sometimes feel bad for having all these questions, but, um, you are a wonderful writer and uh i feel like there's a part of me that thinks like sometimes having conversations with people um who what's the word i'm looking for like talking to you and feeling how thoughtful you are and like comfortable with silence and all the work that you've done to try to overcome shyness um, makes you a great conversationalist. Well, thank you. Even though, you know, I think our traditional understanding of it is like, it's the person who's like babbling all the time. Um, anyway, it's really nice to meet you. Uh, congratulations. Safe travels. Where are you on to next? I'm going back to DC and, um, I'm, I have one more reading, I guess, on the tour in Cleveland, like my home base. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going back to New York, I think a few times. And then uh, what about the next book? Can you give any hints? Mm, it does have to do with isolation. Nice. So. <laughs> Great. Is it a novel or stories? It's a novel. Oh. How far are you? I think I, I'm giving myself five years. <laughs> Again. That's, the, that's the window? Yeah. So, I don't know. I feel sometimes further and sometimes closer. Okay. So, we will wait for your novel on isolation. Mm -hmm. How many years into the process are you? One. Okay, so it'll another four years, give or take. You can check in again then. You'll tweet about it, and a publisher will immediately swoop down, mm -hmm. and it'll be done. Yes, hopefully. All right, Nicolette. Well, uh, thanks again, and best of luck to you. Thank you. Okay, that is Nicolette Polek, and her story collection is called Imaginary Museums. It's available now from Soft Skull Press. That was a cool conversation. I enjoyed talking with her. Uh, you can find her on Twitter. Her handle's at Nicolette Polek. Once again, the story collection is called Imaginary Museums, available from Soft Skull Press. Go get your copy. Go get it. Go get it. Go buy it. Go borrow it from your local uh, lending library. And then read it. And then share it. 
You know how this works, right? Thanks to uh, Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music there at the top of the interview. If you would like to write to me, if you have something to say, if you have a reaction, if you have a story to tell me, you can email me at letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. If you like this program, if you find it nourishing and enjoyable, you can support it. Did you know that? You can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Tip your server. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget that there is an official app. This podcast has its own official app. The Other People with Brad Listy app is available where you get your apps. It's free. Just like all the episodes of this show are available for free. I don't paywall anything. Everything, I just give it away. What do you think about that? All right. What do I got going on next? Uh, Let me see here. One moment, please. So I try to... uh... Next week on the program, I have... Catherine Coldiron. That was a fun one. Catherine Coldiron. It's a good name. Wish my last name was Coldiron. Uh, I will be talking with her next week on this program, but I won't be tweeting about it because uh, I uh, I gave it up. God, I miss it. <laughs>